Hey, good to be with you this morning. We are going to wrap our study of Acts for this year. It took us half a year, and we're going to stop here, but I'm kind of sad. There's some other things we're going to get to. We're just going to have to pick Acts up again in the future and get the rest of the story. Uh, but as I studied this week, last couple of weeks, there's a question that kept bouncing around my head as I reflected on this story. And the question is to Kevin, and maybe for you, do all people really matter to you? All of them. Because one of our five core values as a church is all people matter to God, and so all people matter to, to us. So the easy question is, do you believe all people matter to God? Do you believe that? Good, good. We believe that. That's great. Then, do all people matter to me in the same way that they matter to God? And that question just sits in the text we're in this morning. It's in Acts chapter 10. So grab your Bible and turn to Acts 10. And this is how we'll wrap our study of Acts. It's taken us, I mean, half a year to get here. And we're going to look at Peter, who we've already learned quite a bit about this year. Peter, by no means was he perfect. He struggled with a lot of things. There was a lot of back and forth in his life, in his early life with Jesus. But we have celebrated Peter quite a bit. It seems like the things that God cares about, Peter comes to care about. And the things that God wants to do on this earth, Peter wants to be a part of those things. The things that God loves, Peter wants to love those things. But when he gets to this issue that all people matter to God, it's an issue that Peter struggles with, and he continues to struggle with for some time. We're in Acts 10, and I won't read the whole chapter to you, but I'd, I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. Read it today before you go to bed. It's not that long, but I don't want you to miss any of the little details in it. But for our time today, I'll kind of walk us through what's happening in this story. It starts with a man named Cornelius, who we hadn't heard about before. Cornelius is kind of, I mean, as Gentile as you can get. He's a Roman of Romans. He is a Roman centurion, a soldier with some rank and authority, who is from Italy. And so he is as Gentile as you get. Verse 2 says he's a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household. And he gave many alms or offerings, or he was very charitable to the Jewish people. And he prayed to God continually. Now, as a Roman and a Roman soldier, he would have been exposed his whole life and, and for the generations behind him to all of the Roman gods, to Jupiter, to Mars, to Augustus, so not just planets, or gods, right? And so he would have been exposed all of his life to all of these false gods that people worshipped. And somewhere on the way, along the way, we just suppose that he began to realize that they're not real and they don't do anything for him and there's nothing for him in following these false gods. But while he's stationed in Palestine, he came close to Judaism and the God of Judaism. And something in him began to stir and began to come awake. And he wanted to know something of this one and only true God that the Jews worshipped. And God, in response to his desire, his yearning to know God, gave Cornelius a vision. And in the vision, an angel comes to Cornelius and begins to commend his faith and his desire for the Lord. And here's what the angel says in verse 5. To Cornelius, now dispatch some of your men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. That's our guy, Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Now, at the same time that he's getting this vision, 30 miles away, Peter is in prayer, and he gets a vision from the Lord. And in his vision, it's a really weird, mystical kind of vision. There's a great sheet that's coming down from heaven descending onto the earth, and on the sheet, it's layered with animals of every kind, of shellfish, pigs, reptiles, strange birds, and all kinds of things. And in this vision, he hears a voice, and he knows it's the voice of God, and the voice of God says to Peter, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Now, understand, Peter has been a decent Jew all of his life, and he's trying really hard to be a very good Christian. And so, like every good Christian, he's memorized Leviticus 11, as we all have. 
So Leviticus 11 clearly says, what? <laughs> All together now. I'll quote it for you. It says, thou shalt not eat bacon or lobster, essentially. <laughs> it, it, basically, it prohibits certain kinds of foods that would be eaten by his faithful people. So Peter, when he hears this, all of his life, he's heard the opposite. So he assumes, now he knows it's God who's speaking to him in this vision, but he assumes God must be wrong. Not that he heard wrong or he understood wrong or maybe he's missing the point, but that God must be wrong. Verse 14, Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Now, Peter's protest is understandable because all of his life, the culture that he's been brought up in, the family that he's been brought up in, the perspective that has been ingrained in him has always told him, stay away from all of these things. Now, Peter knows that he's talking with God. And it's interesting the approach he takes to challenge God. He uses the Word of God to challenge God. In other words, he takes the Word of God as a weapon against the will of God in his life. And I was thinking about how absurd that is until I was talking to some friends this week, and my friend Justin just said, well, isn't that something that we do often? How often do we try to out-Scripture the author of Scripture when we're trying to refuse the call of God in our life? When there's something that we know that God wants us to do, and we go, oh, no, Lord, because in, in the Word you said this, and so I can't do I can't do that thing. And we do this. And Peter's doing it. And God responds to his protest. He, he says again, a voice comes to him. And God says, what God has cleansed, no longer are you to consider it unholy. In other words, don't you backtalk me, son. Right? I told you what to do. I have made this thing clean. Do not call it common. And he says it three times over and over and over again. Now, God isn't really concerned with lobster and bacon. Here, he's concerned with something much deeper, something, something much more pressing that's about to happen in Peter's life. Peter doesn't understand it yet. In fact, as the vision begins to close and, and he begins to kind of become more alert, he begins to process this and he doesn't really know what all of this is supposed to mean for his life. And it's at that exact moment that these men that Cornelius sent to come find Peter show up in town. Verse 19, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, Three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. And Peter went down to the men, and he said, Behold, I'm the one who you're looking for. What's the reason which you've come? And they said, Cornelius, who's a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear a message from you. And maybe from our perspective, we can begin to see that maybe this vision that Peter has is starting to line up with something that's about to happen in his life. And Peter doesn't have it all figured out yet. We're going to see that, but it's starting to dawn on him. Verse 23, so he invites them in and he gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and he went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, he entered into Caesarea. Now, so we can make sure that we're really tracking what's going on here. We've got to pause and understand Jews and Gentiles do not mix in the ancient world. A Jew and a Gentile would never be in each other's company. A Jew would never enter the home of a Gentile. In fact, if a Jewish man went into a Gentile's home, it would make him ceremonially unclean. That's something that would never happen. They despised the Gentiles. They were disgusting and gross to them. 
And this kind of stuff was so deeply ingrained in Peter's life, it was deeper than thought. He wasn't considering. He just felt this way because it had always been a part of his life. It was a part of the culture for generations and generations and generations. It had always come through his line that we don't associate with those people. And he never would have looked at a Gentile or considered a Gentile as valuable or worth his time or worth his energy. But Peter's learning right here. And his implicit biases are being broken down. His heart is changing so that his life can be remade, so that he can begin to see people in the way that God sees people, not the way that he's been taught to see people, but in the way God sees people. And he can begin to feel about people the way that God feels about people, because he can't feel that way until he begins to see them in the way that God sees them. And he'll begin to value them as God values all of the people that God has made. Now, Scholars have attempted to kind of parse out what does Peter's vision mean in all of its details. And we can't be conclusive, but it didn't hurt to, to think about it, to consider it. And they, they said that this great sheet that comes down is lowered by four corners onto the earth. And, and so they say that that represents north, south, east, and west. And as the sheet comes down, he notices there's animals of every kind just swarming all over it. And that's supposed to represent the millions of people across the earth. It includes... Cornelius and his household, his soldiers, his servants, all of the Roman people and all peoples of the earth who all, like Peter, fall short of the glory of God and who all, like Peter, matter to God. And that's the, the picture that we're supposed to understand there. And so Peter, as he sees this, he, he, he begins to get up and he begins to recognize his eyes are being opened, his perspective is being lifted, and his, his attitude is being challenged. And I begin to wonder about, about his attitude being challenged. If Peter had never had this moment, what might that have done to the story of the spread of the gospel throughout the earth? I mean, nothing would frustrate the plans of God. God was going to get his name out to the, all the corners of the earth no matter what. But, but Peter might not have been a part of, of that story. His story would have been written differently. But Peter's learning here. He's open to God changing his attitudes and his mind and his heart. And so in verse 24, on the following day, he entered into Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and his close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and he falls at his feet, and he began to worship him. But Peter raised him up and said, Stand up, for I too am just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered, and he found all of these people. Many people had assembled. And Peter comes in, the first thing he does is he states the obvious in verse 28. He says, a guy like me would never hang out with a guy like you. I want to be clear about that. And good job, Peter. It's a great start, right? I would never hang out with you in normal conditions. But, he says, I can tell God is trying to do something right now. God is on the move and he is doing something. In other words, I'm learning a lesson. So a little bit of vulnerability, a little bit of humility, and it's going a long way. I would never hang out with you, but God is doing something. So verse 29, so I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? What am I here for, Cornelius? And Cornelius looks at him and says, what are you talking about? What are you here for? That's what you're supposed to tell me. God just gave me a vision and said, send for, send for this guy, Peter, and that you would show up and you'd have a message for me. And thanks be to God that even though we're kind of idiots, that God is faithful, and so the very next words that come out of Peter's mouth are the words that we've been waiting for for the whole chapter. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now God is not one to show partiality. 
in every nation. The man who fears God and does what is right is welcome to him. Another way to say that is all people matter to God. And so all people should matter to us in the same way that all people matter to God. So you go back to the question that we started with. Do all people really matter to you? Do they matter to you in the same way that they matter to God? For us to, I think, fully and faithfully answer the question, we probably have to look at our relationship with people from multiple vantage points. A lot of times what we do is we just look out at people and imagine this, just try to imagine there's a, a group of people off in the distance in front of you, right? And out there, as you look at those people, it looks like they're all in a row. They all seem to be clumped together. And it's like, yeah, all of these people, they matter to me. I can see them shoulder to shoulder, it seems. But if we changed the vantage point, instead of seeing in front of you, you could see down on the scene, you might notice that instead of them all being in a row shoulder to shoulder, they're clumped together, but they are in different distances from you. And some have been welcomed closer to you, and some have been held further back from you. And with your natural eyes, with your physical eyes just going through your life, you not, might not realize that. You may think they all look like they're all kind of together. All people are the same to me. That's what I say. I see people the same. But as you look down on the situation from a different perspective, you might go, no, I actually value all people. They all matter, but they matter in different values. There is partiality in the way that I value people. We might recognize that if we looked from different vantage points. And let's be honest, we do write off whole groups of people because we heard something about them, about the way they are, the way they think, the way they behave. And we shut out whole groups of our life from our life because we met one person that was like this, and so we're, anybody like that person will never be in my life again. We mentally excommunicate people who disagree with us on an issue, any issue, don't we? And here's this story. It's Peter and Cornelius. And Peter is representative of the Jewish people, Cornelius of the non-Jewish people, the Gentile world. It's about Jews and Gentiles. And it makes me consider who today would be your Gentiles. Who are my Gentiles today is the question. And the answer to that, I think, is whoever they are. Or whoever you consider as a they or a them or a, a those people to you. Which means it could be a race thing, an ethnicity thing. It could be where you go, that's those people and this is our people. It could be a political thing. Anyone who votes like you, that's us. And whoever votes the other way, that's them. It's those people and their thoughts and their ideas that are so wrong, right? It could be a gender thing. It could be a sexual identity thing. It could be a gender identity thing. It could be where if you agree with me in my perspective, that's us. And if you disagree with me, that's them. That's those, those people. Could be not just ethnicity like people born in this, in this country and in this culture, but there's some diversity of culture, some diversity of skin tone. But it could be people who immigrate to this country. And my goodness, isn't that where we live in the heart of people moving from the, the whole world into the cities that we live in? The nations are here. And when they come, they bring with them practices and habits and personalities and values and cultures and customs and all kinds of things that are different. And we go, this is how we are here. And that's how those people are, and that makes me feel a little uncomfortable or a little awkward. Maybe it's a personality thing. Maybe it's like the introverts in the room are going, I'm kind of quiet and kind of introverted, and when the extroverts come in, those people, it's exhausting. <laughs> and so that you know that the extroverts, they come into the room, they're like, those introverts make me feel so uncomfortable because I never know what they're thinking. <laughs> those people are so annoying in my life. 
I mean, it, it's the rich and the poor. The rich are going, those people who can't help themselves, those people who've made these decisions, right? The poor are going, those people who are rich and they just, they never care about it. It's those people. Whoever to you is a them, they, or those people, those are your Gentiles. And you may value them, all people, on some level, but you may not value, value them on the same level. Do you see what I'm saying here? And as long as we do this, as long as we look at life and all the people in life in, in through a lens of us and them, what happens is all of, all of us clothe ourselves in self-righteousness and everyone we consider a them, we clothe them in our disgust. And I want you to understand that God does not recognize those distinctions. The way God views people is him and us. <laughs> It's God and all the people that he has made in his image that he loves and that matters so much to him. And he may see the difference between those who have come to him, those who will come to him, and those who won't come to him. He may see that, but he does not recognize the distinctions that we use to separate ourselves from other people. He does not. One pastor, he, he said, uh, those we designate as being in need of our mission may inevitably may turn out to be the very ones God uses to teach us something about the gospel. Thinking about how even as a church on mission, that's what we've been talking about all year, how we do this. We think of ourselves as the church, as people who, by God's grace, have our stuff finally kind of together. We're not perfect, but we have an understanding of how things should be, and the people out there are the people we need to go to so that they can become like us in here. Us and them, us and them. You see that? And this guy says, really, the people who we're going to in mission may be the very ones who will teach us the most about the gospel. You think about Ruth in the Old Testament. Wasn't that true of Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite woman. The Moabites were considered to be some of the most despised people to the ancient Israelites. They were disgusting people to the Israelites. They would never. In fact, Deuteronomy says that no Moabite would ever enter into Israel. And yet here comes Ruth, and she is a Moabite. And she becomes a model of faithfulness and love that can be shared with a person. It's her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is a Jew. And because of her commitment to Naomi, the two come and she meets Boaz. And through her relationship with Boaz, Ruth doesn't just become like barely in the family of God, barely in Israel, but she becomes the heart of the story because her great-grandson becomes who? King David, the greatest human king Israel would ever know. And later on, the parents, the earthly parents of Jesus himself. So Ruth, the despised, the outcast, the one that Israel would never look at, would never care about, would never go to, never engage with, becomes center to the story through, through whom Jesus comes. And it's amazing. We learn from Ruth so many things. And Cornelius is the same situation. He's the despised. He's the outcast in the view of Peter. He's the one he would never go to. When Peter gets his vision, at first he's sickened by it. He's not putting it all together. And Peter would not have gone to the home of a Gentile, and yet he does, and when he does and he shares the gospel with him, Cornelius becomes a heart of the story. He becomes the center of it. In Acts 10, uh, 35 through 43, Peter just begins preaching the gospel, and it is like the simplest, most succinct, it's almost as if it's begrudging in some ways, like, fine, you want to hear the gospel? I'll tell you the gospel. But in another sense, it's just like, I'm going to give you just the facts. I don't have an illustration I don't have a joke. I'm not going to sing a song. Believe it or not, there's no haze or lights or anything. I'm just going to tell you the facts. And it's kind of like when we use the three circles around here to share the gospel. He just tells them the gospel of Jesus. And here's the response, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, 
the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And then he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. This is the moment that, that God chose to bring Gentiles into the family of God through Christ. That Gentiles were welcomed into the family through Jesus. And, and we're not given all of the rest of the details of Cornelius' life. We don't get the book of Cornelius. It might be interesting. It's not here. But we do get the picture that he's the first Gentile convert that we, we know of. And it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Tradition holds that he may have been the founder of the church at Caesarea. And this matters. Why does it matter? Because who else are Gentiles? All of us. I mean, I don't know. Maybe we have some Jewish family in here. But most of us are Gentiles. And if this wall had not been torn down in Cornelius' home, (laughs) then where are we? Right? So Cornelius isn't in by the skin of his teeth. He's now a center of the story of the Christian family. It's through this door that he walked that we come in. So let me give you this, just a a few quick lessons um, in response to this story. The first lesson is this. The story teaches us that the mission is not our mission, it's God's mission. We've been talking about mission all year long. I want to be very clear that it's not our mission as Legacy Church, and it's not your mission to do the thing that you thought you were supposed to do. It all belongs to God. It is His mission. And you see here that God was already working in the lives of the people that Peter would never have considered going to. In the life of the person that Peter was disgusted at the thought of it at first, God was already making a way where it seemed that there would be no way. God was working on this end with Cornelius and pulling him in here, and he's working on this end with Peter and pulling him in here so that there would be a holy meeting. And the peoples who are diverse from the earth would come together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we've got to understand that our job is nothing more than to catch up with where God is already working. And he's already working. The Holy Spirit is working among peoples throughout the earth. And our job is simply to catch up with what he's doing. It's to refuse ourselves when we refuse to truly value people in the way that God values people. It's to refuse ourselves when we begin to refuse to engage a person because they're not like us, because they think differently. So I'm already predisposed to go, They're not going to get me, and I'm not going to get them, so what's the point? Why waste the effort, right? They're too far gone, so why would I engage with them? It's too awkward when we are together. It's to refuse that thing in us that begins to look at everyone in our life through the lens of us and them so that we might catch up to all of the people the Lord is working in already. Remember, as we do this, we do this desiring to sound like Jesus. And if we're not gentle and sensitive like Jesus, and if we're not loving and generous like Jesus, then we've done it all wrong. Our approach has been wrong. Our manner has been wrong. And probably it comes back to that that place of us going, us and them. I have something right, and they don't. Those people need what I have. Rather than we are alike, we people need the Lord. It's his mission, not not our mission. 
Second lesson from this story is following God's mission means the destruction of any us and them mentality that exists within us. Now, Peter got to experience all of this stuff in Acts 10. A lot of us don't get a vision. I mean, if you did, I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> but most of us don't get some extraordinary vision like, like Peter got in this moment. And that, that led him directly to this thing with Cornelius that began to change his mind and change his view, change his heart, change the things that he did in his ministry. And yet, Peter continued to struggle with this stuff. You get to Galatians, no, you get to, yeah, Galatians 2, and do you know the story about Peter and Paul getting in a hot debate over this? The Apostle Paul goes to the Apostle Peter and says, I see what you're doing, man. You're hanging out with Gentiles when there are no Jews around, but when the Jews walk up, you get back as quick as you can and pretend you don't talk to those people. I've seen what you're doing, and here's what Paul says. Paul says, you are not straightforward about the gospel. You're twisting things up because of the way that you're living, right? You get to Acts 15, and guess what? Now Peter is giving that same speech at the Council of Jerusalem to a bunch of Jewish Christians and saying, you guys are twisting things up because you are not viewing these people in the same way the Lord views these people. And we really don't know exactly which one comes first. Does Galatians 2 happen before Acts 15? If so, then maybe that fight between Paul and Peter got through to Peter's heart and finally he began to see people and he began to preach that message to others, or maybe it's possible that those things happened the other way, and that he was telling the people in Acts 15 because of Acts 10, hey, you guys are acting like fools because this thing that happened in Cornelius' home taught me this lesson, and then later he's struggling with it again. We don't know which is which. So either way, what's important for us to remember is 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Paul writes this, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. That's your homework assignment, Okay. Memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed before you fall because none of us are too grown or too mature or too kind or too generous to make mistakes, to fail and to fall. We fall short of the glory of God, right? Take heed unless you fall. Third lesson, and I stole this from kids' ministry because it's been cool this year. So much of our act study has lined up with kids' ministry I'd love to tell you that we just were really wise in our planning, but the Lord was just really good to us in this way. Last week they were in this story, and I just stole their bottom line because I think it's fantastic. Third lesson is God can change the way you see others. Don't you like that? God can change the way that you see others. He's about that, and he's about that in Peter's life. Before Acts 10, Peter had a clear viewpoint, and that is changing, and it continues to change throughout his ministry. And it changed in the early church and through the early church. And God can change the way you view people. Peter now is understanding that the things that God wishes to do, can, he's going to do through all peoples for his glory. And it was like that from the beginning. Don't you realize that? From, from the call of Abraham, they would be a nation that would be a blessing to all nations. We're going to bless you, Abraham, and your people, that you would bless all the nations of the earth. It went on through the Great Commission when Jesus told the disciples, you are to go and make disciples of all nations. It, Acts 1.8 is where we started our study at the beginning of the year. He told them, Jesus said, go to Judea, to Samaria, which was another, remember, despised people to the Jews, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth and be my witnesses. It was true in Galatians 3 when the big question is, who are the true spiritual descendants of Abraham? Who are the true children of God? And the answer that Paul gives in Galatians 3 is, 
It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Greek, a slave or a master or a man or a woman or anything. None of those distinctions matter when it comes to being a child of God. If you're in Christ, you are a child of God. Uh, John 1.12. Any who receive him, he's been given the right to be called a child of God. To those who, who trust in his name, who rest in his name. Right? And it's true all the way to Revelation 7. Revelation 7 is how it ends. Behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes and all peoples and tongues were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is how things, this is how things culminate. It's the end of the earthbound story. This is when things get good. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In other words, more than anyone could count. And where did they come from? Believe it or not, they came from the political right and the left. Believe it or not, they came from every profession and every education. Believe it or not, some of them grew up in families of faith and some of them hung on a cross next to Jesus. Believe it or not, they came from death row. Believe it or not, they came from the earthly rich and the earthly poor. Believe it or not, they were extroverts and they were introverts, right? Believe it or not, multitudes... There's our extroverts from every nation and tongue and tribe. Will all, will all people from all walks of life will come to the kindness and the goodness of Jesus, see it and experience it, fall before his feet, bow before him, worshiping him as king. Their whole lives will orbit around him. And yet, we'll still have extroverts and introverts. And yet we'll still have those people and those people, Democrats and Republicans, and we'll still have different languages and we'll still have different preferences and we'll still have different ideas about some things. And yet all of those people matter to God. Every one of them equally, there's no partiality in God's eyes. So our job is simply to seek to see people as God sees people, to eliminate the us and them mentality from our minds that has been ingrained for generations because of the family we grew up in or the part of the world we grew up in or the culture we grew up in or the things that offend us because we just don't like it or we're uncomfortable with it to eliminate the us and them mentality that we might see people as God sees people. And in doing so, we might have to recognize our own hypocrisy and our own brokenness. That hurts, doesn't it? But I can't see their brokenness without seeing my brokenness. And I can't see the possibility for redemption in my life without the possibility of redemption in their life to eliminate that so we see as God sees, so that we might begin to feel as God feels for people, and that we might go to people with that which we've received. Not to make them like us, but to say, isn't this good? And to pray for God's glory that they might experience life. To not be the ones who stand in between another person coming to know the Lord because of our prejudice. It's a good place to pray. God, we come before you right now and we need to take a moment. I just feel like I need to stop and, and not keep talking and we don't need to cheerlead anything right now. We need to sit before you because all of us in this room fall short. On our own, in your word, there is none that is good, not one. 
And as much as I want to believe all people matter to me, I also know, I also know that I struggle, as Peter did, as we all do. And I allow what, from an eternal perspective, what may be the silliest, most ridiculous of things divide me from other people. And I don't give them the same kind of love and care that I might give people who are more like me in the way that I think, the way that I speak. And so we want to take a moment this morning, and Holy Spirit, would you help us with this? Because this is, this is some of the hardest work of the Christian life, confession and repentance, recognizing the hypocrisies that we've embraced in our life so that we might lay them out before you and ask you to turn them over. And so would you help us this morning? Would you, you who sees the depths of our hearts, who sees past the facade that says, I'm okay, everything's okay, I'm doing everything right. Would you help us to see what you see in our hearts, that anything that is sick, anything that is, is reflective of the old life would be exhumed, laid out before you, that you would put it to death so that resurrection life could come. And that's the thing we desire. We desire the resurrection life, but too often we desire that without the death. So kill us first. Everything that's stealing from us life and joy and peace and glory, would you kill it that we might experience resurrection life on the other side of it? And so just for a moment, church, would you just take a moment before the Lord with a quiet heart? Don't try to answer questions, but try to listen. Holy Spirit, help us to identify who are the they's, those, and them's in our life. Help us to receive your call make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus said without partiality. Help us to treat unbelievers as people who are also broken, as people who are also in need, to identify with our great need for the Lord. And please use that, Lord, to draw people to yourself. And Lord, help us to treat other Christians who maybe aren't like us in one way or another 
in ways that we won't be awkward and embarrassed about when we're all in heaven together. Would you do these things, Lord, in us, that we would be a people who are beautiful and powerful, not because of us, but because of what you're doing in and through us. Change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.